a birthday present. What is this behind this veil? Is it ugly? Is it beautiful? It is shimmering. Has it breasts? Has it edges? I'm sure it is unique. I'm sure it is just what I want. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about the poem A Birthday Present by Sylvia Plath. Written just months before her death in 1963, A Birthday Present was published in the posthumous collection Ariel. As you heard a moment ago, Plath lived long enough to at least record the poem, though she never saw it in print. Incidentally, one title Plath was considering for Ariel was A Birthday Present for Daddy. We find the narrator of A Birthday Present baking while sizing up a mysterious gift. Wrapped in veils, its properties are obscured, but that doesn't stop the voice from speculating at what it might be. They are taunted by the gift and question whether or not they are worthy of receiving it. The poem depicts a domestic and mundane world brushing up against the spectral. We might take ourselves to be in a ghost story from the feeling of being watched, the floating transparencies in the periphery, and the odd sudden shriek. And through it all, the sense of death breathing down our neck as we read. Death pervades the poem. It is there in the apparently biographical reference to an early suicide attempt. It is there in the poem's bleak hospital whiteness. And it is there teased in gallow puns. You will not even hear me opening it. No paper crackle, no falling ribbons, no scream at the end. Today I will be, as usual, going through the poem section by section and giving you my personal highlights and reflections. But I am also joined by a very special guest, Ailish Mulholland, writer, researcher and fellow podcaster. Ailish runs the brilliant Plath & Co podcast, which is linked below in the episode description box. I first came across Plath & Co when I found one episode called Plath & Witchcraft which is a brilliant conversation between Ailish and Dorka Tamash about the supernatural element in Plath's poetry. And although Plath is the primary subject of Ailish's podcast, the subjects of her episodes radiate out into fascinating connected topics. Some focus on Plath's contemporaries and others on certain aspects and subjects within modernism. I highly recommend you check it out, but not before you listen to Ailish here talking about Plath and giving a fantastic interpretation of A Birthday Present. Throughout today's episode, we will return to Plath's reading of A Birthday Present, and it was on the subject of her voice that Ailish and I began our conversation. Very corporal or visceral even in hearing someone's voice, because particularly whenever I think we look at poets we almost envisage this idea that there's going to be some form of technology in which we connect to them I think particularly the fact that Plath's voice is so evocative I I can still remember the first time I I ever actually heard her speak her poetry I I can remember listening to that recording of I think it was Fever 103 and I was just gripped by a sensation of hearing something almost not necessarily from beyond the grave but realizing oh this person was real and I think also as well one of the reasons why Plath's recordings are made even more 
valuable is the fact that she died at 31. She died so young that on top of that, her understanding of what she was as a as, as a writer and what she was as a creative is almost, I suppose, made more precious by the fact that we don't really have a lot of uh, recorded material surrounding her work. Um, we have photographs. We have her hair <laughs> um, that her mother cut before she was a teenager. We, you know, we have her prom dress. And recently Bowman's, uh, the auction house in London a couple of years ago, did a really big auction of her artifacts and a couple of scholars, uh, Gail Croter, who I know you've interviewed, and Peter K. Steinberg actually were allowed to hold a few artifacts. And it's really interesting that that idea of, I suppose, the materiality that comes with living and what we collect and also what, what we leave behind. Um, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read Free Martini Afternoons at the Ritz yet, you have. Well, I was going to I was going to talk about the um just mention the address books and how Gail writes about how, you know, you can with uh with Sexton how it's all coffee stained and cigarettes and with um with Sylvia it is typically so very neat. <laughs> what is this behind this veil? Is it ugly? Is it beautiful? It is shimmering. Has it breasts? Has it edges? I'm sure it is unique. I'm sure it is just what I want. When I'm quiet at my cooking, I feel it looking. I feel it thinking, is this the one I am to appear for? Is this the elect one, the one with black eye pits and a scar, measuring the flower, cutting off the surplus, adhering to rules, to rules, to rules? Is this the one for the Annunciation? My God, what a laugh. These opening lines of the poem are shared between the narrator and whatever it is behind the veil. First, the narrator wonders what it is and asks those non-sequitur questions. Has it breasts? Has it edges? Then they say they feel it watching them. They feel it thinking along similar lines. Is this the one I am to appear for? Plath introduces a playfully sinister kind of euphemism used throughout the poem in which sentences that superficially could be said in innocence by the recipient of a gift, I am sure it is unique, I am sure it is just what I want, are charged with deathly significance. The whole poem can be read as a dark pun in which series of stock responses to presents are given black wrapping. I do not want much of a present anyway this year. Can you see I do not mind what it is? I do not mind if it is small. Do not be mean. I am ready for enormity. These puns connect the banal world with oblivion, just as the domestic setting, presumably a kitchen, where the narrator is measuring out flour, is infringed upon by this veiled apparition. In American Isis, Carl Rollison writes that at her lowest, Sylvia steadied herself with routines, breakfast with her daughter Frida, and the religious taking of tea at 4pm. In dark times, Plath seemed to find adhering to rules of domestic chores soothing. But as we can read in the poem, there is what Gail Crowther calls a gritted teeth, grudging approach to the monotony of them. And I think you can hear the scorn in Plath's recording. Adhering to rules, to rules, to rules. It is the it that is scorning the narrator here, the it that is shimmering behind the veil. 
The fact that the narrator feels it thinking and wonders if it has breasts gives us the impression of it being human, or at least being some kind of sentient personification. We might be tempted already to wonder if it is death. Passing through veils does have the resonance of passing from one life to the next. And then there are the narrator's fearful and obscure questions. Is it ugly comes first, before is it beautiful? People tend to fear the unknown before they embrace it. It also makes sense that the narrator feels its presence in quiet moments when she is cooking. Absent minds, after all, are the devil's proverbial workshop. And note that she doesn't say, when I am cooking, which sounds purposeful, the kind of cooking that might require concentration and thereby stave the devil off. No, instead she says, when I am at my cooking, which very subtly makes it sound a bit more automatic and absent-minded, like a familiar chore. The narrator imagines the it scorning her for adhering to rules and for being one with black eye pits and a scar. It shows us the narrator as one exhausted and bearing signs of injury, performing futile tasks. Whatever the nature of this enunciation that is being offered, we have the sense that the narrator does not appear worthy of it, or is at least terribly underdressed. The last thing I want to draw your attention to in this first section is the rhythm. Now, if we ignore the strange questions themselves and just listen to the speech patterns of the first two lines, we have this rush of questions, which sounds to me a bit like a child who is unable to stop themselves asking about what a present under the tree might be. What is this behind this veil? Is it ugly? Is it beautiful? It is shimmering. Has it breasts? Has it edges? It has that airy persistence of a child. Is it a puppy? Is it a spaceship? And when can I open it? a sort of skipping, shimmering tone which throughout the poem will be bluntly interrupted by a bark of hollow laughter or a protruding tusk. It's really difficult to imagine, given how meticulous she was, I sometimes find it really hard to imagine her drafting a poem. Yes. You know, it's like the messy business of sort of working one out. Yes. Have you you ever seen any of the actual copies of her draft work? Only the odd reproduction in a in a book, not never in detail. Okay, um, I would advise to look at the British Library online. They have a couple mm. of articles on Plath's work, but you can actually see the proofs. And what I find really interesting is that Plath is always constantly recycling paper and ideas. Um, the poems that she wrote for Ariel, she wrote on the back of the draft paper that she used when writing the bell jar and you can really see how she goes through these ideas and processes like there's one of my favorites um sheep in uh, sheep in fog um you can actually see where she's written in a little box in the corner like what it is that she's trying to talk about and then how that actually translates on like the left hand side of the paper wow as you can see <laughs> there's some details that I'm very hyper fixated on or things that I picked up from years ago that I'm like there's this thing on this page yeah do, do we know anything for this for a birthday present unfortunately not no um as I'll go on to explain it's often been one of the most neglected poems um within the aerial collection unfortunately and I have as of yet to get my hands on any of the proofs, um, but I live in hope. <laughs> it's a, I, I find it extraordinary that it has been neglected because it is a stop you in your tracks yeah. type poem. Since we're segueing into it, could I could I start by asking why? Uh, what made you choose it for? Yeah. Um, for today? Well, whenever 
I look at this poem. Uh, it was written by Plath in September of 1962 and recorded in her own voice and audio in October of that same year. And it's one of the many, many poems that make up this aerial collection. And I think I chose this poem because historically it has a tendency to be neglected in the canon of Plath's poetry. I often think when people think of Ariel, their minds are drawn towards very iconic poems that are subject to both pop culture and literary uh, analysis. So things like Daddy, Fever 103, and of course, we cannot talk about Ariel without mentioning Lady Lazarus. But this poem has always struck me because of the fact that it hasn't been deeply studied. There's almost this idea that it's a very rich ground for opportunities for interpretation and discussion. And in picking that work, I hope to talk to you today about this idea that Plath is not only very prolific in her work, but she's increasingly varied when it comes to creative expression and writing. Her creative output across her life is very much tracked, but also different. I often think sometimes that people have a perception of Plath that it is always about death drive. We always think when it comes to Plath about the inevitable end. We know how her we know how her life ends. She dies by suicide. And often enough, I think that can often cast a very long shadow over her work. We can often think of poetry and her work, especially as this idea of trying to track or lead up or understand why. I think of Anne Sexton's poem, you know, this idea whenever she talks about um, suicide, it's always people always ask why. It's never how. And that can, I think, very much influence our readings of her work. But that isn't necessarily the case. I don't actively seek out her mental or biographical or cultural experiences when I'm looking at her poetry. Um, I suppose there is a part of me that believes that literature is very much an organic product of its time it lives and it breathes and it is infused with the environments that it is written in but I always think that there is with Plath yes there's the potential for biography to be influential but I also think she's very clear-cut in terms of how the poetic voice comes into play it's very much for me the idea that the poetic voice can often at times be separate I mean, I would, I laugh at this, but I am somewhat of a tentative poet myself. And I think I understand sometimes the creative process that she could have potentially used that this idea that when you are writing, you're trying to get out an idea. And whilst you may use the I voice, that I may not necessarily be you as the person or the individual. People can liken it to taking on the form of a muse or, or a spiritual other, but to me, there's a sense of separation here or the potential for separation not to step on anyone's toes that I think is quite prominent and rich and yeah I'm really excited to talk about it but it shimmers it does not stop and I think it wants me I would not mind if it was bones or a pearl button I do not want much of a present anyway this year after all I'm alive only by accident I would have killed myself gladly that time any possible way. Now there are these veils shimmering like curtains, the diaphanous satins of a January window, white as baby's bedding and glittering with dead breath. Although we heard it scorn the narrator, it still seems to want her, she says. It shimmers and it does not stop. The narrator now tells us that they do not care much what the present actually is. 
They wouldn't mind if it were bones or a pearl button. Speaking of which, try and keep track of our growing hoard of white and off-white items in this poem. The reason the narrator doesn't feel like much of a present is because they are only alive by accident, owing to a failed or aborted suicide attempt. Gail Crowther, noting Plath's attitude of wry detachment towards suicide, writes that she developed the ability to take her internal horrors and with factual skill transform them in the coolest way possible into half-rhymes, startling imagery and subtle associations. Almost as if Plath's close brush with death had left her somewhat fearless. Publicly, suicide attempts are talked about as being something you survive, but to someone in desperation, looking for escape, they represent the ultimate expression of free will. The any possible way that the narrator mentions in this poem has a prideful ring about it. Back then, she was brave enough to face death by any means. Now there are these veils. That now indicates that they are a byproduct of the suicide's failure. Living on borrowed time, veils have stolen up around her, clouding the narrator's reality because she isn't supposed to be here. The very subject of death, which one she could look at clear-eyed, is now fogged with contrary imagery. White as baby's bedding and glittering with dead breath. Whenever we're talking about who Plath's talking to in the poem, I think in poetry, there's always a question of voice and audience that I've previously mentioned. And I think in this poem in particular, Plath is possibly talking to herself in an attempt to address the process of time. And I have an idea about that because it's entitled a birthday present. So what do birthdays actually mean? I know that whenever I have my birthday, I'm always confronted by the process of aging. Um, as Virginia Woolf says, if you're young, the future lies upon the present like a piece of glass, making it tremble and quiver. And that idea of trembling and quivering, I think, could possibly be used to understand who it is that Plath is speaking to. So invariably, if we think about it, our culture and our lives are driven by this idea of significant aging events that mark societal and cultural transitions pertaining to responsibility and characterization, which in turn can provoke contemplation and reflection. So if we think about it, if our life is marked out to us by milestones concerning age, you know, if we think about it, what are big life events? Turning 18, turning 21, turning 30, turning 50, turning 60. If you think about it, you get a card from the queen when you turn 100. You know, all of those, all of these events are often at times packaged for us as being really significant. And with that, I'm really interested in this idea of what aging as a process can mean. So Margaret Gulte describes this phenomenon of aging and culture in her book, Aged by Culture, with the concept of what she terms as age grading, in which status is conferred primarily on aging to the individual, and that in turn creates a form of age ideology, which presents us with this contradiction. There's a tension between this idea of change in subjection to laws that we have no control over, but also simultaneously never getting older at the same time. If you think about it in culture, we have a whole industry driven by it, this idea of anti-aging or the font of youth and how we understand that. And that can be irresolvable and frightening. And faced in a conundrum, that's something that Plath herself is actually increasingly aware of. So if you think about it, in the time in which she's writing this, she's recently turned 31. She's living alone with two young children. She's undergoing a messy separation from her husband. And she's also trying to create a life for herself as a new woman uh, after six years of marriage. 
And to me, she's almost in this poem expressing her anxieties, hopes and anticipations as she looks towards another year. She's actually addressing time itself. Fascinating. A personification of time. Yes, if you like. And that's something to me that I see in Plath's other poems. For example, Morning Song. There's the line, love set you going like a flat gold watch. That idea of your bald cry took its place among the elements. It's that idea of birth and how that's almost time starts and begins in life. And and, and that idea of, uh, I suppose, the figure of father time is something that... Plath is definitely interrogated and for me I also see it in this poem as well that idea of time and aging because if you um if we were to think even culturally for a moment there like um this idea of aging and culture there was often quite a societal ideal that once you reached a certain age you know you were you were geriatric almost and I suppose for someone who you know was going through all of those major life changes you know she's probably definitely reassessing her relationship with the world and her place in it and she always had a had a strong sense of where she would be at what age yes from a very young age yes in her journals she's often just she remarks to herself as a girl who wanted to be god you know she's she's always striving to have certain goals certain achievements you know in a time when in the 50s when getting married very young was the ideal it's almost this idea that you could potentially you know, being old maid or that idea of, you know, certain things that she was going through, like a divorce or separation from her husband are heavily stigmatized. So even, I suppose, trying to battle with that in terms of her own identity is quite admirable, given the circumstances. <laughs> oh, Ivory, it must be a tusk there, a ghost column. Can you not see I do not mind what it is? Can you not give it to me? Do not be ashamed. I do not mind if it is small. Do not be mean. I am ready for enormity. Here we have the most definitive physical description of the it. Something of ivory, a tusk, a ghost column. But the narrator makes it plain that she does not mind what it is, doesn't mind if it is small, but also makes it clear that she is ready for enormity. Arthur Oberg writes about a birthday present and other connected poems that feature an obscure it, saying that what these poems address is the confrontation, immediate or potential, of something desired yet also feared. And they address the problem of finding words able to express that confrontation. In each of these poems, the poet attempts to locate, by means of a run of images, what it is. What it is that can lie behind the veil and be the source of such comforting and horrible enormity. In the last section, I likened the rhythm to that of a child on a Christmas morning, but the narrator is mature enough to offer consolation to the gift giver. Do not be ashamed, she says. I do not mind if it is small. We become aware in this section of a third party, if we are to count the thinking, feeling presence behind the veil, along with the narrator and the silent person being addressed, the person who is capable of giving the gift, but apparently will require some coaxing. Not minding if it's small, but ready for enormity, another play on gift receiving and death, but enormity doesn't only invoke oblivion, but renown or immortality. The narrator is anticipating that her end will bring with it enormity of reputation. They might be saying they are ready to leave their small life behind and ascend, either to a literal afterlife or perhaps the afterlife of posthumous fame. Yeah, there's 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 that idea of, I suppose, death 
is, is that idea of if you could link it to honesty or transparency or as you say like living with delusion or you know almost anticipating an end but I think with this poem in particular it's the use of veiling that is quite significant because an awareness of death or an end doesn't necessarily have to be morbid it's inevitable death is going to happen regardless of whether we like it or not and I for one actually take an awful lot of comfort in that that it's almost something that's out of my control but similarly I think that what Plath is doing here is almost stating that as you say these relics and these veils of death are here and she knows that they're there because she has an understanding of death and death-like experiences in the poem we see references to her previous suicide attempt as you know is this is this the one I am to appear for is this the elect one the one with black eye pits and a scar the scar referring to the facial injury she incurred during her suicide attempt in 1953 when she took too many pills, vomited them up and was stumbling around in the crawl space of her house trying to get help, essentially. But I would argue that within this poem, the idea of death as being something that's like the inevitable conclusion, as we say, isn't entirely fixed because of the very uh, materiality of the veils that surround her. These veils represent aging and death, but it's the degree of clearness associated with them that I would argue uh, challenges this hyperfixation on death because she chooses words such as diaphanous satins, which are characterized by a fineness of texture so as to permit it being safer. And on top of that, we see references to terms and words associated with invisibility and a ghost column uh, and stanzas, which point to, I suppose, a clarity in subject matter. The speaker throughout the poem transitions from anger at seeing these veils almost drawn up to reveal aging and death towards a position of reconciliation, I think, where she comes to understand that aging and progression towards death cannot be whole despite her contradictions and frustrations, as it is instead to be incremental, let it come by the male finger by finger. And as a result of the see-through quality of the veils of life and death surrounding her, obscure, because by its very nature of being both see-through, it's almost like it's not there. So, and as this veil is let down again once more, it's almost as if display and concealment reign as death, in my opinion, slides out of the picture back down to wait until another birthday where it may reappear. Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, the combination of invisibility and and, um, um, opacity and how as they accrue, it becomes less less visible, (laughs) less tangible what it is. So I have... I'm thinking again about every line in the poem now. (laughs) (laughs) Let us sit down to it, one on either side, admiring the gleam, the glaze, the mirrory variety of it. Let us eat our last supper at it like a hospital plate. From the first line, what is this behind this veil? We've had the suggestion of some kind of marriage, thanks to those bridal-sounding veils adding another shade of white to this sense of occasion that the poem has. The narrator now invites the giver of the gift to sit down with her, 
on the other side of the veil's mirrory glaze. And there, with a further sense of ceremony, they might have their last supper. We have the idea of a pair betrothed but occupying different realms by being on either side of this shimmering veil. Does the mirrory variety suggest that the narrator is talking to another side of herself? If the gift is death, however small or enormous, is the narrator trying to instill part of herself with courage, the part that would do the killing? After all, even the phrase to kill oneself implies a fragmented identity, the self that is killed and the self that does the killing. Am I, um, am I right in thinking that then that the, the, the veils do have a, a sort of connection to the bell jar and, or, or a, a, a relation to them a little? I think, I think with the bell jar, it's, it's published in 1963 and it's you know, written over the summer in the early 1960s. So I think you would be right in saying there's probably a similarity in terms of not only content, but also I suppose context, because repeatedly in the bell jar, we have continuous metaphor of this idea to the baby in the bell jar, the world is blank and stopped as bad as as if in a bad dream. And also as well, she talks about how no matter if I sat, you know, if she was on a boat somewhere going to Hong Kong, she'd still be stewing in these own juices. I think for Plath, there's a commonality in using objects or materials to signify some form of possible suffocation or confinement. But with the bell jar, it's a very solid object. It's glass. And similarly, like the veil, although you can see through it, you're still aware of its parameters. Whereas to me, the veil here signifies something that is very penetrative. The veil can be there, but you can still see through it. And the fact that she chooses diaphanous satins again, it suggests a form of delicacy, this idea that the veil could necessarily, you know, it could be easily ripped through for want of a word, but in having that potential for breakage and the suggestions of delicacy, it doesn't necessarily imply negativity. Because whenever she's using words and phrases in this poem, such as she's describing the veils being as big as the sky, you know, it's almost, I suppose, possibly a form of um, hyperbole because how big is the sky? There is a, a limitlessness to it. And within that, it could possibly suggest this idea of potential for exaggeration but but also as well possibly a mocking tone there's a line in the poem uh, about how she says let us sit down to it one on either side admiring the gleam the glaze the merry variety of it let us sit down to it you know like a hospital plate those lines always get me and particularly uh, I know previously we've been talking about performativity and spoken word when it comes to authority it's the tone of her voice in that manner to me it almost sounds like she's trying really hard not to laugh when she's reading mm. those when she's reading those few lines and to me that implies I suppose a form of frivolity within her work yeah that's quite that's quite humorous and that's something that Plath repeatedly does in her in her work. There's she is quite hilarious. <laughs> yeah. In her in her letters. Even. I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in in her in her letters, you know, she's got this acerbic wit that's actually quite stinging. So 
anytime that I bring up this topic of plaf and humor, I always quote the line from the bell jar when she says, when Constantine asked me if I would like to come up to his apartment to hear some balalaika records, I smiled to myself. My mother had always told me never under any circumstances to go with a man to a man's room after an evening night. It could mean only the one thing. I am very fond of balalaika music, I said. So <laughs> it's, it's just this coded cracker of a joke. Like, I think never before has balalaika music seemed so seductive, but also so humorous. And I think this humor is carried on across her work. Like, in her letters to her therapist, Ruth Busher, after Hughes' affair, she shortens Dynastia Weevil's name to Weeby Asshole and remarks that, you know, she says in one of her letters, what has she got that I haven't got? You know, she can't make bread or poetry. She just makes ads about bad bakery bread and she wants to die before she gets old and loses her beauty. The funny thing is, I don't think she must really enjoy sex except in her head. <laughs> I know, scaffing. And then on top of that as well, you also have the other scene from the bell jar of Buddy Willard where, you know, she's expecting to encounter some form of virginal mentor. And instead of that... The scene's just absolutely ridiculous. So I stared at Buddy while he unzipped his chino pants and took them off and laid them on a chair. And then he took off his underpants that were made of something like nylon fishnet. They're cool, he explained. And my mother says they wash easily, which is just what you want to hear when you're potentially being seduced. And then he just stood there in front of me and I kept staring at him. The only thing I could think of was turkey neck and turkey gizzards. And I felt very depressed. Buddy seemed hurt. I didn't say anything. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily sound like she's enraptured by his sexual prowess, but I mean, <laughs> how much more of a pit down is that <laughs> to a potential partner? Like, I feel very depressed at the sight of your Devastating. body. <laughs> Devastating effect. <laughs> I know why you will not give it to me. You are terrified. The world will go up in a shriek in your head with it bossed, brazen, an antique shield, a marvel to your great-grandchildren. Do not be afraid. It is not so. I will only take it and go aside quietly. You will not even hear me opening it. No paper crackle, no falling ribbons, no scream at the end. I do not think you credit me with this discretion. More coaxing and consolation in this section of the poem, as the narrator tries to reassure the giver that their terror is unfounded. You are terrified. The world will go up in a shriek and your head with it. Bossed, brazen, an antique shield. A marvel to your great-grandchildren. This to me sounds eerily prophetic and not for the last time in this poem. A crass and gory spectacle appears to be what the giver is afraid of. Death will turn them into nothing more than a marvel, a relic of forgotten violence. Plath is seemingly predicting how suicide will overshadow other ways of remembering her, how it will inevitably permeate discussion of her work. The world will go up in a shriek is perfectly judged. It gives me the sense of a room full of partygoers up in a shriek, perhaps as someone unwraps their gift. But also the world's extinction. It's one thing to kill oneself and another thing to kill the world along with it. Added to both of these is the sense of a world after the killing, the head gone and the hysterical world shrieking at the bloody remains. It reminds me of the peanut-crunching crowd in another of Plath's poems, Lady Lazarus. 
Biographically, the fears of Platt's addressee were well-founded. Her suicide attracted enormous public attention and scrutiny and did indeed crowd appreciations of her writing with a lot of morbid peanut crunches. However, the narrator is confident all this can be avoided, that it can be achieved with no fuss. I will only take it and go aside quietly, she says. Then comes the shivery, sinister, you will not even hear me opening it. No paper crackle, no falling ribbons, no scream at the end. The narrator sounds firm and even a little hurt that she is not being credited with such discretion. Increasingly, we have a sense that there is a proper way of doing things, that this occasion is one that needs to be correctly performed and correctly dressed up for. So that idea of death as being something that you have to dress up for and perform, <sighs> that's really that's really interesting um, because I think with, with, with Plath and clothing, it's really fascinating. Um, there's, there's a line that I love and I have my letters on hand here to quote from oh. it. She talks about to Olive Higgins Pretty, this idea that, um, you know, after... Ted leaves her. She talks about how I looked in my wardrobe and was astounded. In the seven years of my marriage, I had never bought a new dress or had a hairdo. All my clothes dated from Smith and were too long and oh so familiar. I'd always thought I would never cost Ted anything so he could write and not have a job. And now he is going out with fashion models after telling me he thought clothes were superficial. Well, I got the front of my hair cut and set and kept the long cornet of braid at the back. And then I bought a gorgeous camel-coloured suit at Jaeger's with a matching sweater and a pewter hair clasp and bracelet and a black sweater and a blue and black tweed skirt and new shoes and felt like a new woman. <laughs> so I think in terms of flath and clothing, there is often a very strong sense of identity there. But in terms of this idea of performativity and performing death, that to me is quite fascinating because it's in the sense of, well, what do we mean when we think of performativity? So in terms of... I suppose, instances of Implaff's life of suicidal ideation, there is an essence, I suppose, of performativity in the sense that it's almost like she's replicating certain actions or feelings, but not ultimately giving into them. On top of that as well, I would also say that in her culture, there's a great instance of shame surrounding mental illness and its symptoms and its manifestations. And I think here, whenever I speak of this, of Lady Lazarus, particularly the scene, you know, where she talks about the peanut crunching crowd and how her body is turned into a relic, you know, a miracle that knocks me out. It's almost this idea of in constantly battling with death. It's almost like it's, it's exhaustive. It's exhaustive in the sense, if you think about it, you know, this is a woman who has a history of mental illness and, Dealing with that is exceptionally hard. It takes constant maintenance. It takes constant input to keep yourself in a state where you are comfortable and secure. And the fact at this time that Plath is essentially, if you think about it, estranged from her support network. She's undergoing a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. She also is unfortunately on antidepressants that she reacts exceptionally badly to. She's having to take sleeping pills. I think whenever you're in states like that and are prone to, vun to, to psychological vulnerability, there is a performativity element of it that comes into play in letters and biographies. You know, we have mentions of her allegedly 
running her car off the road in North Taunton in, 19, in the 1962 when Ted Hughes left her. You know, we have this idea where she, where she you know, can voice uh, her fears to her uh, psychiatrist about Ted leaving her and what that means. And it, it, one of the things I think is so sometimes so very hard when talking about Sylvia Plath is because although we know the end, we also know she was trying so hard for that not to happen. Um, the GP who saw her before she died, you know, mentions this idea of how she was really against any psychiatric care because she didn't want to leave her children. Her children are a really strong sense of purpose. And it was just, it was, it, it was, and it still is difficult. And, 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 and that idea of performativity, you could, I suppose, at some stage understand maybe why she's saying these types of things in her work because it could potentially be her only outlet. You know, she very much oscillates between I'm fine, you know, in her letters to her mother home, you know, she tells her off for trying to get local neighbours in Court Green to check in on her. You know, there's instances there of her mother, you know, saying, oh, come home, we will support you, you know, trying to get help that, that she almost, she doesn't want it to accept it, but also at the same time, she's trying to assuage other people's fears. So, naturally I suppose there could be the potential in certain poems for this for that do you say for that performativity to maybe eke through because it could be the only chance she gets for its expression because where else is she going to put it down is she going to write it in a letter to her mother or her friends and then have all hell break loose or is she going to express that fully to a GP where there could be the potential you know for her getting inpatient treatment that she may not necessarily feel is appropriate it's it's almost like this is almost like a form of confessional diary I suppose or some form of venting so to speak to even get some opportunity for I suppose her to maybe recognize some feelings but of course that's all very circumspect unfortunately because we don't have um evidence for it because I would also say as well um, given the fact that we do have uh, some instances of her journals, you know, it, it is quite clear from those that Plath does have a track record of using her writing, her personal writing, that is, rather than creative for some form of expression. So maybe if we did have that extra diary from this time, we could potentially see, oh, that's where this outlet is. That is where this is coming from. For, I suppose, some greater understanding of what it was that she was going through, because unfortunately we only have these brief glimpses. If you only knew how the veils were killing my days, to you they are only transparencies, clear air. But my God, the clouds are like cotton, armies of them, they are carbon monoxide. Sweetly, sweetly I breathe in, filling my veins with invisibles, with a million probable motes that tick the years off my life. Now we have clouds and cotton joining the pearl button, the bones, the ivory, the flower, the baby's bedding, the satins, in this haze of white, what Marjorie Perloff called the white of human extinction. Purity is something Plath associates repeatedly with death and also babies. The beginning and end has the same pristine hospital whiteness. Nothing of the off-white of these knick-knacks cluttering the narrator. What jumps out most horribly in this section is the carbon monoxide, impossible not to be reminded of the circumstances of Plath's suicide. Plath was aware of this method of suicide long before 1963, 
and in a journal entry even highlights the expense-saving advantage of filling a garage with carbon monoxide as opposed to crashing a car. But the point being made here is that the veils are killing her anyway. Invisibly, slowly, the very air she breathes is like cotton. Perhaps this is why she does not mind what lies beyond the veil, what comes after death, because it can't be worse than this living death, this death that is killing her days. Would it not be so much kinder to, as she says later, let something go and have it go whole? This way of living is choking her and it will leave her numb. However, it has not only produced these veils, these clouds of cotton, but the poem as well. Reading this, knowing that it was written in a very bleak, difficult period of Plath's life, but one that was also extraordinarily productive, gives me the impression of a poem being in some way purgative. Writing a suicide becomes a way of staving one off. Carl Rollison has stressed in his work on Plath that she was not doomed, that her death was not inevitable. On the contrary, she was making determined and sustained efforts to stay alive. Yeah, there's there's definitely this idea, I suppose, of um, of trying to create an environment that she's the most strongest in or feels the most supportive in that autumn and uh, winter. You know, she's definitely trying to surround herself with people who she knows is going to help. You know, you've got Susan Milrow, the nurse um, in Devon who looked after the children. There's also, she's putting in place instances where she feels she won't be isolated. So, you know, she's moving to London. She's trying to be around people in a city compared to Court Green. She's taking control of her finances. She's also as well, you know, trying to engage nannies very unsuccessfully, but you know, she's trying. She's even thinking of things like how she's going to be living in an unfurnished flat because it's going to cost less money, you know, giving herself things to do like preparing a house. Those things are are very important. Um, and even uh, she mentions in this idea of like her processes when she goes to choose a house in London, she takes her motivation from you know the area that she's going to be living in and the memory she associates that with so the fact that when she settles in Primrose Hill that's near Chalcot Square where she lived whenever she first had Frida so she's very much I suppose trying to make a network but also ensuring that you know she's not really cut off and isolated she's trying to get involved with the areas that she lives in trying to engage and work with the BBC the New Yorker, like she's definitely uh, trying to help herself in as many ways as she possibly can. As you say, it's just unfortunate that it's, that it's not enough. You were silver suited for the occasion. Oh, adding machine. Is it impossible for you to let something go and have it go whole? Must you stamp each piece in purple? Must you kill what you can? This section very strongly supports Ailish's suggestion of the addressee being time itself, a silver-suited adding machine with its tick, its stamp, that leaves each piece bruised purple, just like the narrator herself is black-eyed and scarred. Must you kill what you can, the narrator asks, reinforcing the idea that such a life is a living death. That's really very interesting to consider, death and life and life and death. It's almost this idea of as as I've previously mentioned this this idea that you know she's aware of death in the poem it makes sense that there's an awareness of it in life and it makes sense that 
she would be aware of it as you know Plath has an experience of death from a very young age her father dies when she's eight there's this idea you know she can lose um she can lose grandparents and also I think what's important is to understand what we mean by death in life we think of death in quite a formal sense the idea that life ends we stop living but death can occur in many other more metaphorical ways say the loss of friends the loss of environments like closing certain chapters in your life the move from childhood to adolescence um even if we think about it you know maybe moving to different cultures different places there are many opportunities to experience versions of death shall we say that could answer the idea of death and death in life and then when we think about life and death that to me would hint at this idea of the afterlife or the legacy of what is left behind in Plath's work so I would be thinking here in relation to areas such as the fact that she is a meticulous archivist. She has such a rich idea and uh, content of materials. Whenever herself and Hughes first start going out together, she, you know, she mentions this idea that darling date your letters because when we're old, they will ask for them. And lo and behold, she proved right. She has, I suppose, a very keen awareness of not only her own ability, but that of her husband, Hughes. You know, she very much puts in effort, enters the hawk in the rain for various poetry prizes, is typing out his poems, sending them to publishers. And on top of that as well, she also has a keen awareness of her own ability. You know, she wins a grant for writing the bell jar. She's consistently getting awards. She's putting her name out there. She edits um, the new critical poetry collection in London. She does interviews for the BBC. She really understands I suppose not only her legacy in the moment but also what may come afterwards um I think also in this poem uh there's a line where she talks about how you know she could be 60 by the time death and all of its complexities and understandings could reach her and she still wouldn't have an understanding of it and that to me the idea of almost like the fact that she mentions her even however slightly that she's thinking of you know life beyond 31 to me seems to speak to a hopefulness or even an idea that you know she's not going to die at 31 Mm -hmm. she's going to you know live and I think sometimes for a lot of people you know we think that 1963 was years ago but unfortunately it wasn't I think sometimes we forget the plough was so young when she died that there is so much opportunity I always say I'm I I mourn for what we could have had from her had she lived longer there is this one thing I want today and only you can give it to me it stands at my window big as the sky it breathes from my sheets the cold dead center where spilled lives congeal and stiffen to history Let it not come by the mail, finger by finger. Let it not come by word of mouth. I should be sixty by the time the whole of it was delivered and too numb to use it. Enormity, again in this section, standing at her window, big as the sky. And yet another evocation of off-whiteness, this time with semen, the spilt lives on the sheets that congeal and stiffen to history. Just on the topic of death and whiteness, It was interesting to read in Plath's journal for 1962, a series of entries where she chronicles the death of Percy Key, one of her and Hughes' neighbours in Devon. 
The entries are different in tone to the bulk of Plath's journal and are typed and edited as if she considered them a discreet creative writing project. Anyway, the bit that caught my eye was the description of Percy Key in his coffin. A silver scroll reads, Died June 25th, 1962. The raw date, a shock. A sheet covered the coffin. Rose lifted it. A pale, white-beaked face, as of paper, rose under the veil that covered the hole cut in the glued white cloth cover. The mouth looked glued, the face powdered. Very similar mixture of white and off-white, and a veil in the mix as well. What's also interesting is that, not to put too fine or disrespectful a point on it, but Percy Key, in a very different context, is also stiffened to history, his mouth looking glued, like the glued white cloth cover. He is suited for the occasion, something our narrator puts great emphasis on. There is urgency in this section of the poem, the sense that if death arrived by word of mouth or mail, she would be 60 by the time she had all of it, and too numb by then to use it. Use it is important. Death is a gift that the narrator does not want to passively receive, but consciously use. We know that she did intend to kill herself and in that first attempt, and... I suppose that idea, I'm alive only by accident, sort of brings me around to this idea of like belief systems that Plath operates on. So I think within that the idea of her life being a um, and being alive only by accident or it being a miracle, I think that speaks to her wider belief of fatalism. So it's almost this idea how that everything happens for a reason was often her rationale. Like I would think here upon her process of choosing a flat in London to live in and she regards her decision entirely through having picked the right place to live off a book of Yeats's poetry so she says the strange part is that when I came back to Devon I said laughingly to my young nurse I will shut my eyes and open my book of Yeats poetic plays and get a message from him I did this and the words I put my finger on were get wine and food to give you strength and courage and I will get the house ready. I was amazed. I knew Utes was some sort of medium and believed in spirits. And although I am very sceptical, I certainly think it would be symbolic for me to live in the house of a great poet I love, which happens to be on the street I would love to live on most in London. But probably the owner won't approve of writers. If I could get it, I would try to be in by Christmas. Like that to me just, I suppose, sort of sums up Plath's belief system. And and a lot of people sometimes I think are quite prone to viewing her in terms of occultism or the supernatural. But that sums up for me this idea that that's how she operates. She's a fatalist. And I think that's sort of one of the reasons why she comes to understand how she survived that attempt and how yes it was a mixture of circumstance but also fate and I think surviving a suicide attempt for her at least was quite loaded it took an awful lot of psychiatric rehabilitation but on top of that as well it's almost like in the aftermath of that she's trying to find her identity again she goes through her famous platinum blonde summer she I suppose tries to um get back to understanding herself and what and who she is as a person and that idea that well if fate said that I didn't want to die then 
fate must be giving me reasons to live and it could be a potential explanation but to me I always think back to that Yeats quote and her you know choosing a flat and, or get, wanting some sign or symbol that to me is I suppose really expresses her modus operandi only let down the veil the veil the veil if it were death I would admire the deep gravity of it, its timeless eyes. I would know you were serious. There would be a nobility then. There would be a birthday. And the knife not carve, but enter, pure and clean as the cry of a baby. And the universe slide from my side. After writing the poem on the morning of 30th of September 1962, Plath, as Gail Crowther records walked downstairs and prepared roast beef with potatoes, corn and apple cake, followed by banana bread. At 3.30 she hosted afternoon tea for the Fosters, some North Taunton neighbours, who later said, we did not know she was a poet and she did not tell us. When Gilbert Foster asked where Ted was, Sylvia told them she had thrown him out. According to Marianne Foster, what followed was a series of bitter outbursts against Ted, not only regarding his infidelity, but his many other undesirable habits. When Gilbert started to produce examples of other artists who behaved in a similar way, Sylvia became upset and transferred her anger onto us, as Marianne puts it. It was left to the two-year-old Frida to bring the tea to an end, saying to the Fosters, Mummy thinks you should leave now. In this final section of the poem, we have the narrator explicitly guess at what is behind the veil. Death, with its timeless eyes, its deep gravity, its nobility. To embrace it, to welcome the entering knife in whole, would be noble and far preferable to acquiring just another scar from another carving birthday. I I think that for me, for Plath, birthdays as a concept come across as quite a social responsibility. So in her letters home to her mother when at college, She's always continually thanking her mother and relatives for the presents and gifts that they give her. And that sort of dwindles off the more when she sort of, I suppose, comes out of that young adult stage and starts, you know, becoming a proper adult with more geographical and possible emotional separation. Um, What I find quite amusing is that her mother in her letters always sends her birthday cake whenever it's her Mm. birthday and cookies and plath routinely shares that with the people uh, she lives with, once remarking that one cake managed to feed 20 girls and Mrs. Shakespeare, the, the house mother. So it was just quite bizarre. I was thinking there, what type of cake is really a making that's capable of feeding 20 people? But I think birthdays for her in light of her separation from Hughes become quite important. It's almost this idea of like reclaiming her identity after marriage. Um, Early on in her journals, she references this idea that she will escape, I will escape into domesticity and stifle myself. And I think whenever she was with Hughes, naturally, there is, I suppose, an element of that in her work. You know, she's got two very young children. She's trying to manage a house and also write at the same time. And I suppose for me, I sort of view this period of her life as an attempt to once again, I suppose, make herself get back to the essence of what is Sylvia Plath, who am I? And she, I suppose, goes on in in a bit about, you know, trying out different hairstyles, different places to live, different work, you know, definitely becoming or trying to be more and more independent. And, and, And that idea of the second volume of her letters, beginning with, you know, as you say, a lovely birthday and ending with the babies are crying, I must take them to tea. 
is quite stark. And I think that reflects the the environment and experiences that she was undergoing. You know, at the time of writing that last letter, she's a she's a very mentally distressed and mentally ill person. And naturally that ending when we know what comes next, I suppose, is made all the more harrowing and depressing because it's almost like knowing the ending to your favorite film and it upsets you. You you can't, I think at that last letter, you can't read it without thinking of the sheer anguish and desperation that she was going through. And that to me makes it all the more emotive. And because if you think about it, you know, how, how do you even process that as a person, you know, in, in the depths of such anguish and despair? It's just that, you know, the it, it leaves you speechless. You can't think of even a, an adequate, like, I can't think of an adequate response to it. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you again to my special guest, Ailish Mulholland, who you can hear more of on tomorrow's extended interview. Until then, happy reading.